Welcome to This Moment in Democracy. I'm Saladin Ambar. This episode was recorded on November 8th, 2023. Today's episode features the Eagleton Institute's biannual Morning After webinar, where political strategists, public officials, and journalists analyze the 2023 New Jersey legislative races and their impact on the 2024 primary season. Tune in to explore how this election shapes New Jersey politics. Good morning, everybody. Let's grab that cup of coffee or tea and welcome to the morning after presented by the Eagleton Institute of Politics at Rutgers University. I see we still have some attendees piling in um, for such a, uh, you know, if you want to say a, a niche election um, in terms of who was at the top of the ballot, we have a, a full crowd in here today. Um, so as we're piling into the Zoom webinar, just a little bit of background, Eagleton has hosted the morning after since primary season of 2000 as a way for all of us in the state to come together and talk about the election that happened the day before, whether in person, like in the old days, or virtually as we are now. I'm Ashley Koning, an assistant research professor at Eagleton and the director of the Eagleton Center for Public Interest Polling. While not the morning after's longtime beloved and recently retired John Weingart, I am honored to be your moderator this morning, especially with such an incredible expert panel. These panelists will help us break down this election cycle's top state legislative and local races, which traditionally suffer from low interest and low turnout when at the top of the ballot. I'm also honored to be joined by my co-moderator, Sarah Samdani, an undergraduate associate at Eagleton and the editor-in-chief of the Eagleton Political Journal. I now want to turn to our panelists and hear their take on the election cycle. Before that, I will introduce each one of them. We'll then follow up their analyses with some back and forth between Sarah, myself, and the panel, and then we'll open up to questions from the audience. As always, the great thing about this webinar format is that we invite you to use the chat function to submit your questions at any point throughout the webinar. Without further ado, let me introduce our panel members here today. We have a great panel. It kind of feels like summer camp since all of them know each other. So it's like one big reunion. Uh, first, we have Janine LaRue. She's the founder of the podcast, LaRueless Cafe. She's also senior vice president of the Kaufman Zeta Group and has spent almost 40 years serving the public on policy, governmental, and political issues in the public and private sectors. In 1971, she was the first woman, first minority, and youngest person elected to public office in the 56-square-mile township. Charles Style is a political columnist with The Record. He has been covering New Jersey politics from the State House in Trenton since 1993, first with the Times of Trenton and then with The Record, which he joined in 2000, also a recent Lifetime Achievement Award winner. Colleen O'Day has spent her entire career reporting New Jersey news and has won numerous state and national journalism awards and fellowships. She joined NJ Spotlight News in 2011 and now serves as its data reporter and really is just an all-around New Jersey election guru. Stacey Schuster is the executive director of Women for a Stronger New Jersey and is a veteran political strategist and the founding executive director of Women for a Stronger New Jersey. She's worked on dozens of campaigns at the federal, state, and local level. Arlene Quinones-Perez is the equity partner at Dequitas Fitzpatrick Cole and Giblin LLP. Mrs. Perez has been involved with the elections in New Jersey for over two decades and has served as the Democratic chair for the Hunterdon County Democratic Party for close to a decade. Her involvement in politics ranges from working on presidential elections to local municipal races. And finally, last but not least, Matt McDermott is the senior vice president at the Zeta Group. Mr. McDermott is a highly respected public affairs professional with more than 25 years of public and private sector experience. 
Matt has served in two administrations, including seven years as a senior staff member to Governor Chris Christie and held senior leadership positions in four state departments. Now it's time to hear all of their analyses, which I know I'm also uh, incredibly excited to hear. Janine, I'm going to throw it to you first. Give us your elevator pitch of what happened last night. Well, I am I am so thrilled. First of all, to serve with all these people on this panel is just a joy because uh, it's difficult because I happen to like them all. So uh, it's not going to be that kind of energetic stuff that I like to go to one, two punches. None of that today. Um, I'm just going to have my comments because I know we only have three to five minutes. So I want to focus on three areas that I think are important. Um, I'm out of Trenton, as most of you know and um, have been really engaged in, in politics here at the local level, right on up to the state level. And this year we had the first time in 35 years, think about that, a local school board election. During a time when people are banning books and uh, going after uh, transgender kids and what parents do have a say about and what they don't have a say about. And one of the candidates who ran is someone who is kind of infamous for her anti-Semitic and also um, homophobic comments when she was on council, Robin Vaughn. So she's the one who pushed for a school board election and decided that she was going to run. And we had the pleasure of beating her three to one at the polls yesterday. It felt so great. Our first elected school board in 35 years in the city of Trenton is stellar. The current uh, president school board, another person who has been a part of it for 45 years, and a young guy, Larry, Larry Trailer. they all won handily. So we're excited about that. Now we go to the county race that I'd like to focus on, because I'm sure we'll hear other county uh, areas. I happen to have had the pleasure and the honor to be one of the co-chairs of Dan Benson from Mercer County Exec which was uh, pretty controversial in the beginning because we thought we were going to have a primary. He won so overwhelmingly last night, but not just one, but he won with opening the tent, getting a lot of other people at the table. We were thrilled. The only statewide race, because I'm sure we're going to have some great conversations on the statewide races, but the one I want to focus on is LD11. As many of you know, not only am I Black, female, but I'm also a lesbian. And every time I saw polls about what was and was not important to voters, I got a little nervous about what they would do at the polls yesterday. We are thrilled. I am the chair of the Garden State Equality Board. We are thrilled that we had the first ever lesbian out of uh, uh, out lesbian, Luann Peterball, who will be serving in the assembly this year. Absolutely thrilled and happy that all of her running mates did well. So I'll um, refrain from anything else right now, but that's where I'd like to start. Thank you so much, Janine. Charlie, as our one of two reporters on this panel, give us your take. Um, well, thank you for having me. Um, and this is my fifth cup of coffee. So uh, if I jump at any point <laughs> and you see my socks, that's caffeine. But um, I would just say that I, I, we had been waiting, I guess, um, I think this is a really stunning defeat for the Republicans. Uh, there was a lot of this pregame hype about momentum, uh, that there was a lot of grassroots anger that was going to kind of crest upward through the ledge from the school board races to the um, 
legislative races. Uh, that simply did not happen. That doesn't mean that they didn't, the the so-called parental rights um, activists didn't score some victories apparently in Monmouth and Ocean County. But in terms of this kind of swallowing up the Republican Party, it just simply didn't happen. And I think the Republicans were sort of um, falsely uh, hanging on to this confidence from that came from 2021 when uh, there was a backlash. They picked up seven seats. And I think there was a lot of uh, post-pandemic anger that they tapped and and uh, utilized to uh, uh, propel those victories. And I think that shaped their thinking going into this race, that that anger was still bubbling like a toxic stew out there, ready to to um you know spill into this race uh anger at wind farms anger at parental rights anger over electric vehicles you name it uh, and that this would somehow um you know uh you know continue the momentum and bring them closer to uh, a majority control uh and they ended up you know, as you know, the results sort of speak for them for themselves. And I think at the end of the day, what they didn't have also is that they didn't have a, a coherent message about the future what, or vision of how they're going to govern. Other than, you know, I've, Senator Tony Bucco did talk to me about and others about maybe if the Republicans close the gap in the majorities that the state would, you know, negotiate with the Democrats more to the center and we'd have more of a centrist vision, but they didn't really lay it out. I, I I think they just ran on fear and anger, hoping that that would cover the day. And ultimately it didn't attract enough voters, may have repelled some, and it didn't uh, compensate for their operational disadvantages, which I'm sure we'll talk about. That's my little spiel. That was great. Thanks, Charlie. Colleen, I feel like I saw you just hours ago. Just uh, hours us, ago, Ashley. Just hours ago, one <laughs> sleep away. Give us, give us your take. Yeah, and I want to uh, thank you for having me. I want to compliment Ashley. I think um, the Eagleton poll that came out uh, just on the eve of this election really kind of maybe helped to center us uh, because we did see all summer it seemed like the Republicans were hammering the Democrats and the Democrats just said nothing on the right. gas stoves, parental rights, um, all of these issues. And Ashley reminded us it's the economy, stupid. It's fiscal issues. Right. That that's that that's really what it's all about. And we certainly, I think, saw that in the results um, last night. Uh, I'm just looking at the key races that we were looking at. I mean, Vin Gopal won by 11,000 votes. You know, this was supposed to be the closest race in the state, we all thought. Uh, John Berzicelli won back in the third by 4,000 votes. Now, the assembly races there are pretty close. They're still um, under 1,000, um, expecting there might be a recount. But um, if there are more uh, vote-by-mails coming in, and there may be, those would tend to... to swing kind of democratic so i would think that that the democrats have that um seven thousand for zwicker and um five thousand for moriarty so you know i'm not sure what we were all wringing our hands over and wondering what's <laughs> gonna happen it just it, you know certainly it was not the republicans night as we expected and i would love to hear um what matt's gonna say about that um 
you know, I, I think that, uh, and, and I want to hear what Ashley has to say about this too. Uh, my take, I know Charlie has talked about this COVID backlash, but, you know, I'm, I've been wondering in terms of what we saw in 2021, if there wasn't an anti-Trump um, kind of vote that came out, particularly down in, in South Jersey in the third. Um, remember in 2018, we had all of those, um, you know, women coming out. We think it was women, but folks coming out. And and that was what drew in our 11 Democrats to Congress. Um, and that was the anti-Trump vote. So here, I just wonder if twenty, if part of twenty one was a you know anti Biden vote, uh, a Trump loss vote. So I'm going to come out and vote, and those folks were not motivated. There was also there also was not the governor's race. Um, one thing I do want to say, we don't know, and I'm really curious to see is what the abs- actual turnout's going to be. It looked like it was pretty similar to 2019. Um, we don't know that yet, so that may answer some more questions. But um, definitely not a good night for the Republicans. Thanks, Colleen. Stacy, your angle? Certainly can't argue with that. Um, not a good night nationally, not a good night in New Jersey. And we had some really disappointing races um, and results in our legislative races. One thing that you know, I think it's noteworthy as Republicans do some soul searching here is that at the same time, we saw some really big wins and some bright spots at the local level, the county level and the local level. I mean, we, we won a mayor seat and four council seats in Summit, four council seats in Westfield, where Republicans have been losing for then pre-Trump. Um, we saw two victories, two council seats in Milburn, which is a two to one Democrat town. Um, so it's interesting, I think, reconciling the success at the local level with the disappointment and the losses at the legislative level is key to defining the path forward. And you know, one of the really obvious things when you look at some of these races where those local races were successful, they focused on redevelopment, taxes, transparency, things that, you know, they highlighted a vision that they could, they could accomplish and they we're disciplined in that message. And I think looking at how we can translate that at the legislative level, you know, I think in 2021, one of the big overarching messages was a check and balance on one party control and people seem to respond to that. Um, you know, This year that was used, but the talking points underneath of it, I think tied less clearly to that. Um, so you know, I, I don't disagree with anything that's been said, but I, I think there is a, we have to look a little bit deeper at what we saw all the way down the ballot to understand exactly what went wrong at the top of the ballot. Thanks so much, Stacey. Arlene? Uh, thank you very much. It's wonderful to see everyone this morning. And so Stacey went to the bottom. I'm going to go actually look to the top and start actually with some results across the entire country, because to me, that always helps me when I'm looking at numbers, um, especially when we're going into 2024, where we have the president, the U.S. Senate and the U.S. Congress on our ballot next year. So you have Ohio, where residents won an amendment to the Constitution for women to have the right to access health care by 56.6%. That's a big win. You have Kentucky Governor Bashir won by 52.5%, who clearly ran on his opposition to the state's total ban on women's access to health care. Democrats in Virginia held majorities in both houses, setting back Governor Youngkin. And then, of course, Mississippi held the Republican seat with a 51.8% to a 46.9% margin. Now, for New Jersey, Democrats absolutely strengthened uh, our control or 20-year control over the legislature. We flipped back the third district Senate seat, which is a seat you know that, that should be held by Democrats um, for the time that we've held it. Uh, we also held four other competitive Senate seats in South Jersey and ultimately broke even in the Senate, finishing with the same 25-15 majority in the upper house. Democrats also expanded their numbers in the assembly, winning at least three additional seats. And then we have three others that are a little too close to call. So hopefully we'll have that. Again, this is something that's a little farther out for us, probably 
definitely by Friday for sure. You'll have the third, the eighth, and the 38th. And then, of course, some huge wins to point out, just like Colleen did. You have Senator Vin Gopal's margin. It was 59.8% to a 39.4%. That wasn't close. wasn't even close to being a close race. You have the Legislative District 16, where all three seats were held by Democrats, with the Senate seat taking a 55.4% margin, and the Assembly seat at approximately for both seats about 27%. Again, good margins for Legislative District 16, which we knew after redistricting would have a smaller margin. And then for the first time in history, we have a Democrat in the assembly for LD16, who actually is a resident of Hunterdon County. That is a huge win for us in Hunterdon County. I put a plug for the uh, us in Hunterdon County. And then, of course, going into Election Day, Hunterdon County had close to 70% VBM returns in numerous municipalities across the entire county. Again, huge wins for us um, from a perspective of being ready for Election Day. So I would say overall, Democrats had an election, a, a truly excellent election year and election cycle for 2023. I'm really proud of how we did across the entire state and even how we did across the entire country. Um, and I think that sets a really good tone for where we'll be in 2024, uh, regardless of the most recent poll. It's still too early to poll on that. So I think we'll we'll be in a really good shape for 2024. Just, that wasn't my poll. I'm just going to just going to put yeah. that <laughs> Yes, you're great. Just, you know, you know. Thanks, Arlene. <laughs> Truly appreciated it. And Matt, last but not least. Thank you. Uh, I probably everything. First of all, it's a great privilege to be part of this webinar today and to share the screen, as Janine said, with so many people who I respect and like. So that's that's always a great combination. Uh, a lot has been said, but I am Irish, so I will say something. Um, you know, every campaign plan is based on a few principles, right? Calculation, inspiration, motivation, execution, and then if you've done the first few items right, hopefully a celebration. So unfortunately, from my perspective, but not maybe, uh, you know, last night the Democrats got to have that celebration. I think they hit every one of those principles extremely well, as, as has been said here today. Um, calculation basically is your strategic plan. What, what, who are you as a party? What is gonna be your messaging? Who do you stand for? What kind of quality of candidates do you have? Uh, secondly is the inspiration. How do you find issues that attach to people, energize them, affect them intellectually and emotionally to, to help motivate them to come out and vote for you, which we saw across many districts, including LD11 in large proportion last night that I think was unforeseen. Uh, and then part of this whole big, big issue is execution. How do you get people to return their VBMs uh, particularly if you're Republicans, how do you in, in, ensure your GOTV and turnout is exceptional, uh, particularly in a low turnout year, which which this was. This is the lowest turnout in the four-year cycle. We know that Republicans somehow uh, just can't get more motivated in these low turnout elections, uh, at least at the state level. I think that's important. And so last night, the Democrats celebrated kudos to Senate President Nick Scateri and Assembly Speaker um, Craig Coughlin, I think that that they, to Charlie's point earlier, they learned after the 2020 election, it was a bit of a wake up call for a variety of reasons. I do think COVID played a lot into that. I think there were other issues in that year, but they understood, they were a little nervous. It was a wake up call. To their credit, they developed a, a, a legislative policy strategy that helped influence the campaign on how they were more deliberate. The Senate president, as you know, has been very deliberate in how he's run that house. And they knew they needed to think through how they were going to do this. I also want to credit Assembly 
Minority Leader John DeMeo and Senate Minority Leader uh, Tony Bucco, they work tirelessly to try to get the message out and to raise money. As you know, it's a great disadvantage to be on, on the minority party at the state level particularly. But they worked hard. They tried to get across. They recruited good candidates. And as we saw last night, um, best laid plans didn't really work. So at the end of the day, money matters. Campaigns with good execution, turnout really matter. Messaging matters and quality candidates matter. But I will also say there was good news for Republicans, as Stacey noted. Really significant is the leadership from the county and local levels and their candidates getting out and taking advantage of messages. So in Monmouth County, where I live, um, uh, Chairman Sean Golden and, and the party did a great job in, in ensuring that two freeholder commissioner candidates, I can never get that right, um, one by 20 points, they, they 20,000 votes. They, they did exceptionally well with an incumbent and a new candidate. At the same time, Senator Gopal was, was crushing it over in LD11 and working really, really hard, which also was a reflection of what happened two years ago. Nobody took this race for granted. We saw that in LD3 in John Bersicelli, who probably worked incredibly hard to make sure that what happened in 2021 uh, did not happen here again. And again, he's another reflection of quality candidates. He was just a good name recognition. He's a, a smart, savvy elected official and legislator. People know him. He was a local elected official. Same with Vin Gopal. You know, it's just hard. Steve Donezhian was a great candidate. It's just hard to overcome their work and they had a great strategy. So I think good news goes forward. As, as Stacy said, I think the party looking forward to 2025 and beyond or even between has to think about what we stand for. How do we come to, I think, some messaging that matters to most people in New Jersey on issues. Thank you. Thanks so much, Matt. Thank you. Uh, everyone, we are making great time. Thanks to the stellar panel over mm -hmm. here for keeping everything tight. Apparently, just like Charlie, we've all had our caffeine this morning. Um, so that means we have even more time for our questions and then to get to some audience questions. I'm first going to pitch to my co-moderator, Sarah. Arlene brought up an excellent point uh, about 2024. And I actually see in our questions, somebody talking about 2025. So Sarah, why don't you lead us into our conversation? Uh, thank you, Ashley. Um, just to echo you, thank you so much, everyone, for being here. It's been wonderful hearing from all of you. So my question for all of you is, considering the dynamics and results of these recent New Jersey elections, how do you think that the outcomes might either foreshadow or influence the political landscape leading up to the 2024 and 2025 elections, both in the state and just on a broader national level? I'll I'll start. I think Matt said something key, and it was that you have good candidates. And so that and reaching out and actually touching base with voters. And so we do already know in some polling, I, I truly do believe because we've seen it over and over again. If candidates continue to reach out to minority groups late in election cycles, like this Latino community or the black community or Asian community, it will be too late. And so my theory when you are a candidate is you're a candidate before you're a candidate. You should be making phone calls. You should be touching base with people. You should be talking to voters. That is the only way you will be successful in your races. You can see it with a, a senator like Vinical Paul. He is excellent at it. He always does that regardless if it's his turn to run or not. And so when you do that type of touching base with different minority groups um, or just constituents as a whole, you will absolutely be more successful. And hopefully we continue as a party to uh, adapt that strategy, certainly moving forward as well. Janine? 
Yeah, I, I co-sign everything Arlene has said. And I think there may be a couple of elephants in the room as well as far as the upcoming um, elections in 24 and 25. One is the dynamics because of the Menendez indictments. That probably has changed a lot of the landscape of what we might see next year as it relates to the U.S. Senate race. So we don't know yet how if the uh, first lady does step out and announce that she's running for U.S. Senate, that could be a game changer in a lot of ways. And it also then, because of Andy Kim, it is going to create another opportunity for a congressional race. So um, I'm going to be watching that. For 2025, I have to tell you, I've never seen candidates announcing, officially announcing so far in advance, they're running for governors, giving me a headache. And I don't even know if it's a good thing the way politics is. Things change in 48 hours. So we have now another candidate scheduled to announce tomorrow, uh, former Governor McGreevy. We already have at least one candidate who has announced and others who are definitely going to run. So that's all going to be fascinating. So I think neither the Republicans nor the Democrats can sleep right now because this, everything is a moving target. And so I, I'm going to be watching it very, very closely. Anyone else want to chime in about 2024 or 2025 implications? I would just say real quickly, um, it's I, I'm a little hesitant to suggest that the um, enthusiasm and the results of the Democrats here in New Jersey is going to translate into the same level um for biden next year this is a biden state it's still going to be a blue state but the electorate in a low turnout election like this tends to be older whiter um and um you know the polls are showing that biden is struggling with younger voters now and he's losing ground in the traditional democratic coalition among uh blacks and latinos so I think it's I, I'm hesitant to say this is a, a triumphant moment for uh, Biden here in New Jersey. I, I, I still think he'll carry the state, but it's and I, I just think that also that template that we saw we, was mentioned about uh, nationally as well uh, is I don't I, I'm not so sure yet that this is a uh, you know is going to translate nationally. This, this Democratic win naturally will uh, translate next year. And how does this set up uh, 2025 or how does this set up 2025 in terms of Governor Murphy's last two years working towards 2025? What does this mean? What is the narrative now in the final two years? I, are you asking me or just generally? Anybody, Charlie, if you <laughs> want to get the first crack, go for it. I don't. Well, I'm, I'm still trying to get my head around that. It's very interesting that, that Governor Murphy struggled in his first term in negotiating with the South Jersey wing of the party when Senate President Steve Sweeney was at the helm. Uh, then after 2021, it seemed like the South Jersey machinery was in decline. Now it's staged, it's roaring back with the comeback, with, except they don't have you know Steve Sweeney in the most powerful pulpit, but they have substantial uh, leverage now uh, over future of Governor Murphy's budget and uh, some senatorial appointments. So I think that's going that dynamic is going to be really interesting to watch. And I, I, I don't think it's going to be a cakewalk for for uh, 
of Governor Murphy. It wasn't going to be a cakewalk anyway. It was going to be a lame duck on a lame duck cakewalking. It's, it's sort of a contradiction in terms, but I think it's going to be very fascinating to watch. And in throwing into the mix of all this is potential of Tammy Murphy's uh, Senate run. And how does that new power in the South and the governor's power over the budget and other things that the South wants, how is that all going to be leveraged into um, a potential nomination for the Senate? It's going to be fascinating, actually. Yep, that's a good point. And we would hope that that wouldn't be something that happens. But um, oh, yeah. but sure, I mean, you know, if, if Tammy Murphy is running for, for the Senate and obviously Phil is going to want her to get, have South Jersey support, um, you know, does that help them to leverage, uh, you know, their votes to get some things for South Jersey? Um, you know, it, it as a as a lame duck, I mean, he should have some freedom, right? He should have more freedom because he doesn't have to worry about about that election again. And and you could one might normally expect for him to get even more progressive or try to you know promote some even progressive ideas than than he has in the past. Um, but when you've got this, as I said, as, as Charlie noted, this, you know, potential Tammy Murphy uh, for Senate election, um, you do have to wonder what that's going to do. I think, uh, if I may, you know, Charlie made a couple of good points as to Colleen. I think it'll be interesting. I don't know how this person, you know, yet affects the governor going forward. He will be in his last two years. The Senate comes back to start a four-year term in January, which is significant because they're not for re-election again. Yet the assembly is in two years. And so, you know, I, I think particularly after the last election two years ago, the the rate of progressive policymaking may have slowed a bit in, in the two chambers in the legislature. Uh, so I, I think you're right, Charlie. I think the question becomes, you know, what is the governor looking to accomplish in his last two years as part of his legacy? Is it going to be clean energy issues? Is it what, what is it going to be? Um, Where's the legislature and where's the leadership on that going forward? The role of the South Jersey uh, Democrats now has been uh, essentially reestablished with a couple of big wins. And that was a question mark after the last election, uh, you know, with John Bersicelli and Moriarty taking the, the, the two Senate seats. Clearly, LD1 and LD2 are, are solid Republicans, and I think they'll stay that way. They have great leadership down there. Um, but but what's that gonna what's that gonna mean to the governor as he has sorts out his policies and right there's the the first lady's issue running into that as well so um, and not to you know we still have the congressional delegation vote and we have the the senator Menendez issue that that you know how does he deal with that you know and how does he work through all of this so I think it's gonna be interesting I don't I don't think like Charlie I think I'll I'll pass on making any great um, prediction but I think we have circumstances that will warrant uh, something as we go forward is worthy of looking at. Maybe I'm a little more positive as a county chair, I guess. <laughs> I feel like, um, one, you have a great mandate from yesterday that the governor can certainly rely on to continue to push the agenda that he's been pushing now since he's been in office and continue to move forward with the things that he wants to see for the state for the next two years. And we would talk about the U.S. Senate. You know, there will be a number of candidates that come forward 
um, the first lady hopefully uh, being one of them as well. And, you know, she's a strong candidate on her own without just the governor on her side, right? She's got an excellent background as a candidate. And then you have the timeframes, right? So if we're talking about U.S. Senate and a primary that's done in June, you know, the general election, we're going to hold the U.S. Senate on the Democratic side. A Republican taking that seat would be extremely hard in a state like New Jersey. So for me, when I look at elections, I look at the timeframes and what needs to happen in the next number of six months that we have. Um, and then what the governor does after that six month period with his policies and things that he wants to get done going into the next cycle for 2025, which is the gubernatorial. And what does that look like for a Democrat to be able to hold that for another term? Right. Because that it would be history in the making. So I think those are things that I'm looking at when I'm I'm looking at the next number of years for the election cycles. Thanks so much. Let's let's pivot now to those issues that were so important on the campaign trail this election cycle. Stacey, I'm going to pitch to you. We have a question from the audience. Um, if we don't mind, we can do kind of a little bit of a blend of both. And there's a question from the audience regarding school boards and uh, the parental rights movement. Can you comment, especially on that school board level? Um, what, what were the issues at stake in this campaign? And then we can open it up in terms of all of the issues that were discussed. And did we see them pan out on election night? So and I apologize, I have a cold, which is why I keep muting um, so that you're not all listening to me cough. Um, the school board level race, it's difficult to tell at this point in time. We certainly saw in 2022 that people were motivated by that issue and um, by that office. So when we went back and looked at the data on low propensity Republicans who chose to come out in 2022, a number of them said they would in advance of the election. But the ones that actually did, the issues correlated really strongly with education related issues. Um, and you could see in places like Moorestown down in South Jersey, the number of people voting in school board was higher than it had ever been. And it was competing with people at the top of the ticket voting for Congress. Um, so, you know, there was data to suggest that those issues motivate low propensity voters. And I think that's what Republicans were working off of. Whether or not they motivated and those voters for school board level office and it translated, it's, it's because they're not RD marked on the, you know, the ballot there. It's really difficult. I don't know the names of a lot of them for me to assess whether or not that was successful there. Certainly at the local level, the uh, mayor and council seats that we picked up, those issues weren't ones that were being discussed. Um, the issues focused on the issues that Republicans have won on in previous years. You know, they were economic, they were um, local, and the success there was clear. It's And obviously, it's also clear that that issue didn't serve to motivate voters, at least not sufficiently enough at the legislative level. Whether or not it did so at the school board, I just don't have the data to back it up yet. Um, I su suspect we're gonna see mixed results though. You know, in some areas it will have been really successful in others it will not. Let's open it up to the broader conversation of issues that had played out this election cycle. Anybody else want to comment on the issues? Obviously, as Colleen mentioned, we came out with a press release uh, on election day regarding the issues that were at the top of voters' minds. And voters told us it was the economy and fiscal issues, uh, which is very different from what we heard on the campaign trail. Um, I would like to to weigh in on, on the issues. Um, I think what has happened, you know, one of the things we have a dwindling accessibility to the media. Uh, it used to be you could learn so much about candidates uh, through newspaper articles and that type thing. And we just don't have the breadth of it that we used to have, which uh, people 
tend to have to be educated. And I think on a lot of the issues that surfaced yesterday and those that people thought would surface where they tried to uh, uh, tell these uh, issues based on fear mongering, the reason it didn't work is that people have begun to educate folks on issues. You know, the whole issue about parental rights. Um, once you talk to parents about their kids who may be very nervous about coming out of the closet or who are ch changing their pronouns because they really feel this within themselves, but they don't know how to handle it with their parents. It's not about snatching uh, parental rights from the parents. It's about what do we what do we want to do that's in the best interest of the kids who are struggling. So I think that a lot of what happened yesterday, it's about educating voters. And the last thing I'll say, what I'm finding in talking with people, and I have friends on both sides of the aisle, people aren't as angry as they were before. Yeah. I mean, that could change next year, but folks are just not as pissed off um, as they were when you had somebody like Trump, who always had uh, the podium. He just, he could make all of us angry, uh, but that's kind of calmed down. I'm sure it'll return, but that's calmed down. I, that was, the, thank you for putting it so bluntly. Uh, that was really what I was trying to say in my opening remarks. People are just not as pissed off as they were two years ago. I agree with that. Um, I, I also, um, the you know, Stacey, that was a really good point. I, I was wondering about this whole, uh, the ability of the anger from this coming up ballot, if you will, for lack of a better term, from the school boards to the, um, the legislative races, and it's a very simple barrier. You don't really have the advantage of putting every the school board people on the line with the rest of the candidates, and that's an operational problem, I guess, for the for any party that wants to exploit the school board elections going forward. But certainly this year, I think it was a problem for the Republicans, which they had a hot issue and they couldn't really channel it up yet. I don't know. I mean, that's my suspicion. I don't know that I don't have the absolute data. Um, to back then. One thing about parental rights as well, I think uh, I was uh, I talked to Tom Malinowski last night, um, who was at the Zwicker headquarters, and he was part of an effort to push back on parental rights. And he said the what I, I, I thought was an interesting point is that uh, people may be all amped up about parental rights, but they they're really there's also a significant amount of people that are afraid of bookman. And once you were able to put the emphasis on book banning, then the ardor for all of this, you know, for parental rights gets diminished. And so I think, I don't know if the fear of book banning, I think kind of uh, piggybacked onto the other, I mean, sort of overshadowed in some places in the minds of some voters that, hey, I might be for parental rights, but I, I don't know about this whole book banning thing. Look what they're doing out in all these other states. They're getting, you know, they're really lunging to right. I don't want that in my uh, middle-class school district here in New Jersey. I, I think that kind of dynamic might have um, of worked. And finally, I think the other point you made, too, about the uh, 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 sprawl. I, I saw that in my district here in the, in the 16th. It came late. I thought it was a very effective message, but it just seemed to come late. And it wasn't attached to, and I didn't think emphatically enough to one party rule, which I think was another really potentially good theme. I just didn't see it emphasized, uh, frankly enough. It seemed to get lost in 
the, the clutter of all these other culture war issues that, that the Republicans were running on. Yeah, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm with Charlie in that district. And yes, I saw those mailers come late, but they also came along with some late uh, mailers sent by um, Senator Michael Testa, who, as far as I can tell, still hasn't reported to ELEC that he's uh, paid for them. Um, another man who we think is running for uh, governor, and yes, it would be nice if he would um, fill out the proper forms. Um, but so you had the, you know, he had he had these mailers where you see um, Andrews Wicker is his vision of the Jersey Shore is, uh, you know, is the windmills in the background. And um, then we had a, a, a crime mailer that came out late. So it, it seemed like there was just a lot of jumbling, like you were being hit by a lot of things. I mean, I wonder, and I guess we need to talk to actual people if if folks just don't get those, because we, at least I think Charlie and me as, as reporters, right, we look at these things and think this looks like an effective mailer. If, if the majority of people don't just kind of toss those aside and don't actually look at those issues and still do go into the polls thinking about the, the property tax and the prop, the pocketbook issues, or just, you know, if you're a partisan person, if you're a Democrat or Republican, you're just looking to vote that line, at least at the, you know, the legis the, the races that have that, yeah. that party listed. Um, I, I do want to note that I, I feel like this was the first uh, general election where the school board race could have become tangled up with um, politics, which is something we had avoided for so many years by having it in April, right? That was the idea to have yeah. those elections originally set aside because you didn't want them to become part of politics. Um, but it doesn't seem, at least from the results we've seen so far, as I think Stacy said, and, and, you know, Charlie is indicating that that that's really kind of bubbled up or maybe even pushed down. I, I'd like to... I I think those are some great comments. I, I want to go back for a moment to uh, what Janine was talking about with the press, because I'm always curious. It kind of connects to what Stacy was talking about, right? So all politics is local. We, the Republican Party, saw saw great gains this election at the local level. I, I'm noticing that a very emerging issue is about development or overdevelopment, however you want to see it, where all of these towns and all of these communities have old buildings lighted facilities, old, you know, commercial properties that are in need of redevelopment. They all need to, to make some taxable rateables, right? So it's how do you do that? How do you manage the density issue? How do you manage the population growth that comes with it, a range of issues? But again, I think I'm always curious about what the role or lack of role of a dynamic press is. And this is, you know, a bit of a kudos to our two reporter friends on, on the thing. But you know, in towns like Summit and Westfield that have strong local media, they have a great couple of newspapers there. People read those papers. They're part of your community, right? It's a fixture. Where does, you know, where does that that end? And of course, we have two sets of races this legislative season, right? We have a state race, and then we've got the county and local races. And there, there are a little bit of a difference there. And you are appealing. It's so much easier, I think, for a local elected official or a candidate to touch people and talk about same issues. They live in the same community. If it's the right message, um, I think it's very effective. But, you know, the further we get away from the constituent, the harder it is to capture their attention. Um, anyway, so I'm just always curious. I don't have an answer, but I think part of this is where is the press in this? Where is the lack of local 
uh, media helping or hurting uh, our, our, our candidates and our process. And I think that's just something we always have to think about. How do we get that message out? Just a couple it's of notes. Just, mailings. just a couple of notes, because I, I do want to hear from our reporters, uh, Charles and, and Colleen, in terms of their take. I think some things to know, I mean, we had, I want to say it's about a 23% turnout, right? So when you say that people aren't pissed off, they're not. I mean, 23% is not a good turnout for an election year. We knew it was going to be low. It's the top of the ticket is Senate, Assembly. Yes, right. But that still shouldn't make any of us proud. That's not a good turnout number um, for any state in our country. We should want people to come out and vote. In terms of, I am a parent of three. I want to make sure that when we put people on the school board, it doesn't matter if it's a D or an R, it matters that it is a person who cares about making sure our children are taught and educated uh, with what is essential and important to them as they continue to grow, right? So I never want to see a a line that entails, you know, Assembly, Senate, Senate Assembly, local candidates, and a school board. That to me is never how we should be in New Jersey or in this country. And so local races, what we definitely need are newspapers and reporters able to tell us a little bit more about what these candidates stand for, especially on a school board level. Because when we don't have that, then we do have, and I will say this as a Democrat, Republicans, certainly in Hunter County, that have taken advantage of this opportunity for the last number of election cycles where they have um, literally infiltrated and taken pictures and sent out mailings together where they are running as a line for a school board. To me, that's inappropriate. That should never happen. Um, it's something that we have very much shied away from, even when we are requested to do so. Uh, it's not where we belong. It is parents and, and neighbors helping to educate our children and creating policy that is important for our kids. So, you know, if we have reporters that are able to help us more on certainly a school board level, that would be essential to making sure that that does stay separate and apart, right? People can get out their message in another avenue rather than having attached to a party in order to get their message out. So just just some things to note. I mean, the school board is such a tough, a difficult issue to deal with um, because if we don't start to integrate, start to utilize these avenues on the Democratic side, Republicans will continue to put very right wing people into the school board. They already have over the last number of election cycles. We have seen it. And yes, when people take the time to explain the position that no, we are not in favor of book banning, but sometimes it's hard, right? Unless a reporter is getting that message out that this particular candidate stands for book banning. How do people know that? You know, we were lucky that we could say, hey, we know a neighbor that knows this neighbor. They're they're good. They'll be fine on the book on the school board and be able to get that message out for them just to try to help. Um, but at the end of the day, it would be nice when we have local information to be able to have those avenues available for citizens when they're going to vote. I, I you know, first of all, I totally agree with all of that, that analysis. I will say, though, on parental rights. Uh, there was some really, I think, excellent reporting all around uh, by my colleagues. Um, you know, the record we had, we tracked it very well. There was an excellent piece in Spotlight by a young reporter, uh, Hannah Gross, who actually went out and videotaped interviews with um, uh, transgender youth who are in the crossfire of this issue and I, and I think that was really excellent really brought the issue home for anybody who watched that so there was great stuff uh, Marianne Carruth who from my paper I thought did a very nice job um 
and others. I, I, I'm not leaving anybody out deliberately. So um, I, I think it is really, I think what, what uh, Arlene mentioned now, the real problem um, is I think the local level, you're just not getting that municipal coverage. And that's where that, uh, you know, really tracking that ground grassroots uh, 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 activity is really important. I come from a tradition at the Princeton Packet when I started in the 80s. That was a paper this thick on Thursdays. We covered everything, everything. And now there's one reporter for the whole region. So it's really pathetic. And I don't, I, I don't profess to have any uh, answer uh, to that. And I, and I told Janine the last time I was on a Zoom, she brought up this issue about the press. And I told her she should give me some time to get some antidepressants. So before we have this discussion again, and you jump me. You got, I, well, you know what, though, Charlie, let me just say this, you know, and, yeah. and you know, my passion, I always wanted to be a reporter when I grew up. I mean, I was an English major and I was an English teacher and I was a stringer back in the days. And I remember when I served on the school board and on council, one of the things that we as elected officials prepared for between meetings, we knew when we walked into the room, there were going to be about five or six reporters sitting in the back of the room and just leaning in on every word we said. They had our packets before we did. And now, quite frankly, people can sit up there and, and say anything in public meetings and and vote anyway, and it's almost nobody watching. And it has changed the dynamics tremendously, and I don't think for the better. Yeah, I mean, I wish we had an, an answer. I know Charlie, I probably everyone on this Zoom, um, but yeah, it's just, it's a problem with, with what's happened when I was before I was at Spotlight, I was at the Daily Record for most of my career, more than 20 years. And we covered every single school board race, every single municipal race. You you called every single candidate. Um, this year, we were part of a project with a number of other uh, outlets across the state and some freelance reporters to put, uh, through the Center for Cooperative Media at Montclair, which is trying to promote um, hyperlocals and, you know, and uh, joint projects. And uh, we interviewed or we tried to give a, a, a candidate's questionnaire. This was just at the state level because getting to the municipalities would be, I mean, it should be done, but you'd need really like a, a, an army full of reporters. Um, but of the 240 plus candidates running for legislature, only 40% even returned those. So most people didn't, and that's Democrats and Republicans and incumbents and challengers didn't think it was necessary to even answer. And that, you know, this is a I mean, I think if you look at it, it was clearly, you know, very unbiased. It's it's um, it was three questions. It was questions about who you are. Uh, tell us about your personal and political background. And then three issues questions. And then finally, say what you think the biggest issue. I mean, I, I don't know how you could, you know, offer somebody more uh, of an opportunity to just kind of say your piece. And we only had 40 percent uh, response. So it's. I mean, the, the whole thing, I think, is is uh, problematic, and I'm, I'm not sure. If we can solve this, I think we would be uh, subject to getting a Nobel Prize or something. I don't know, but I it's just, it, it's a hard problem. Any chance we're solving that by 1215? <laughs> I, I also think there's this sense of, um, 
you know, the people in political establishment feel they don't really need the press anymore. They have these other social media outlets. I mean, I I, I haven't checked this, but I I understand the uh, Republican candidates in the 11th district didn't even allow reporters in on the victory celebration in, in Monmouth County last night. I mean, I don't, to yeah, me, that's I, just an attitude. It's like, we don't need the press. We don't need coverage. We don't have any... We, we have our own ways of getting the message out. Thank you for showing up. There's a door. I never, I, 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 I never heard of such a thing. I've never heard of any candidate not opening their doors on election night to the press. Charles, you hit something key and it's social media. We should not be relying just on social media for our news on candidates. Um, and that should not be the forum because you right. see it, especially on local races and on the school board races we saw a lot of it them going back and forth on social media about who supports what who got what endorsements um you know maybe 50 percent of it's true the other 50 percent who's actually checking who's verifying right we're relying on other neighbors to verify information which again where are they getting it from so concerning social media is absolutely concerning uh, especially in terms of how much disinformation is being allowed out there and put out there sometimes purposely uh, just to dissuade voters from voting or voting obviously for a particular candidate. That's exactly right. By the way, I think the key is the key. You know, we, we have all these sources of information, what's credible. And I think that's where we go back to the media, back to local media, where we, you know, we, we have this sense that it's credible reporting that, you know, that, that all the outlets are doing, particularly at the local and, and, state level and i think that's that's important i mean it's exactly right because who's who's putting these you know what remember the old days it was a blogger who was that that wasn't a reporter <laughs> necessarily it was somebody blogging no disrespect to anybody who does that yeah. is blogging still a thing i don't know but um <laughs> but i think you're right it, it's about credibility of information as much as it is just information right because now somebody has to sift through all of that but um, that's why we rely typically on the trust we have with local journalism Sarah, why don't you lead us into a question about um, not just the issues, but also some subgroups that could have been important last night and also, of course, going forward. Yeah, thank you. So a lot of your responses were very insightful. So thank you. And for me specifically as a college student, I'm very aware of the lower voter turnout with the younger demographics. And so I was wondering what you all thought were specific issues that would make it more likely to encourage and motivate more young people to come out and vote. And just also more broadly, how would you describe the youth voter turnout as well as turnout for um, specific subgroups like Latino and Black voters? I'd like to. No, Janine, please. I, I'm, I'm just going to say. Yeah, I, I'm just going to do a quick thing on what, what we did here in Mercer County, which I thought was brilliant. Uh, Dan uh, Benson, very early on, said he wanted to open the tent for more people to get engaged in this process. And we set up what we called affinity groups. So we had young people for uh, we called them Benson backers and we called them young people for Benson, pride for Benson, African-Americans. We had something like 11 subgroups and those groups actually held house parties or meet and greet over the period of the spring, the summer and the fall. And I have to tell you, even at the victory party last night, it was reflected by who showed up in the room. Lots and lots of young people were there. Lots of people of color. I mean, it, it just was amazing that that process worked. And when we look at the database 
of how many people we kept tabs of the numbers over the course of the campaign, how many new folks we touched from the spring until last week. It was amazing. So we did, and it takes work. Affinity groups, uh, it takes work to get all that coordinated, but it did work for us. I love this morning after panel, and yet I haven't had time or haven't gotten the numbers yet to really be able to dig in to see what was Black turnout, what was Latino turnout, what was Asian turnout, what was young turnout, right? We don't know that until we actually dive into the numbers. And for me, it's all about numbers. Um, they don't lie. And so it's nice to hear what Mercer County did with Janine and having those, uh, again, I said it before, reaching out. That is key having a candidate that is willing to open the tent to make sure that they tap into as many people as possible, whether that's young, black, Asian, uh, Latino, that's what we need in order for people to feel engaged. Again, that's why I do believe the polling that's out there on the federal side, and it's that you don't have those groups engaged right now. They're not either paying attention or they're not paying attention, let's say. And again, like we talked about voters not being pissed off. They're not, right? People are 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 very focused on their lives and the things that they have going on. And so we saw low voter turnout yesterday. It's going to take a candidate and candidates on both sides to really tap into different minority groups and young people to see how they can get them engaged. And it's something we try every cycle and sometimes it happens too late. You cannot wait to do this. And so I think Governor Murphy has done a good job of it. You also have Chairman Chairman Leroy Jones who has really brought in the tent for the Democratic Party and made sure that there are caucuses now that are touching every possible demographic in New Jersey that you can. Um, and I, I see that as a county chair and I see it with him doing it with the Latino community, Black, Asian, uh, veterans, young. They are really doing a good job of, of having these caucuses and trying to get people to really come into the fold and know what the Democratic Party is about. So again, I'm looking forward to what this next cycle looks like because I think we're doing the lead work. I, I'd just like to add to that. I, 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 after 2021, the Democratic Party pivoted away from more progressive social issues that might appeal to younger uh, voters and people of color and put the emphasis on affordability. I mean, um, and uh, you know, pocketbook issues. They rung up the biggest rebate check program in the history of the state and it promised it's going to come in subsequent years, even though uh, I'm not sure the money's going to be there to sustain, I don't think it's going to be there. I wouldn't bet the farm on staying New Jersey. Um, and it, it was a, there was a noticeable absence of things that might uh, issues that might appeal to kids in this election. I got kids. I'm just showing my age here a little bit, but I mean, there was no discussion about DACA or immigrant issues, um, social justice issues any of the uh, concerns that were raised by the post-George Floyd moment wasn't there. This was strictly an, a, a, an attack at the kitchen table. Right here in the 16th district, you had one of the most progressive members, uh, uh, Andrew Zwicker and his team, literally sitting around the coffee table um, without Danish, talking about, you know, the the future of, of of New Jersey and making themselves look like Ma and Pa voters, not necessarily appealing to young kids, but to older voters who tend to vote in uh, and suburban voters who tend to vote in uh, low turnout elections. 
Yeah, I think the other thing that goes along, and then Colleen, I'm gonna shut up. Sure, no, um, but, but I, I just want to, I want to say this because I know people get tired of hearing me say these things, but it matters. It also matters how we show up. I mean, look at the screen. Uh, I, you know, when I started on this road, 1982, coming to uh, the morning after, and you know, I was within JEA, and in my mind, people who did the spinning the morning after, they were all white men. I remember sitting, coming to Eagleton for years and listening to people analyze what happened during the election. And it was, unless it was Ruth Mandel, it was all white men. Look what you put together here today. I mean, I might be the oldest one on here. I'm 73. I'm an old fart. I think I'm a little bit older than Charlie. You got a black, you got black folks, Latina, you have Dems, you have R's, you have, you have women, you have, you have all of this on here and how we show up and engage in this forum. It does matter. And so I just wanted to throw that out there because, you know, we started out with almost 150 people watching this and we still have just about 130 and they are seeing a picture of what New Jersey looks like. Sarah, you know, years ago, it would have been a young white male student throwing out these questions. We've got to stop it. And I love what you've done here today. This is how we change the trajectory of where we're going in this country. If I could just add to that, Sorry. I think from a candidate perspective, that matters too. Um, and that's part of my organization, um, Women for a Stronger New Jersey. It is designed to help get a more diverse cadre of candidates in the Republican Party. Um, and we've we've seen more of that. And it'd be interesting, I think, to go back on this election. Arlene mentioned that the data's not there, and it'll be a while before it really is, you know, solid and able to dig into. But, you know, there are places where we we ran really young candidates that we typically don't have. Um, Deirdre Coxar in Cranford, who looks like she may have won. Um, you know, what were people like her more likely to show up in that election? Um, you know, because I think part of inspiring people is your story relating to theirs or your life experience looking like theirs. And if we're going to dig deeper into these different groups of people, we need to have people that reflect their communities running for these offices. So I, I think that's a critical part. You got a young candidate, uh, at least statewide, or a legislative candidate in the 16th as well. Uh, yeah. My, in Ross Traphagen, my son actually went to high school with him, which kind of like had to make me pause. Um, but, but getting to Charlie's point, um, I think as long as we keep seeing that it's mostly older voters, you're, we're not going to see those kind of issues um, that are attracting younger voters. I mean, I'm thinking too, there was so much that that um, Murphy has done and in terms of making college more affordable uh, at the county college level and also at the state college level, at least for, for some of that. Now, obviously, state college is kind of a it's a little bit harder to say because tuition keeps going up because of the amount of, in part because of the amount of state or because they're not getting enough state aid. But at least in terms of the the lower income folks, um, you know that that's something that could have been brought up, but that was something else that that really was not an issue. I mean, there was literally nothing, at least on any any of the mailers that I saw, that would have attracted a young person like my son to vote. I actually have two candidates. I I just want to point out we had a council. Well, 
a person run for council. He did win in Flemington, Trent Levitt. He's young. I can't wait to, to break down the numbers to see where they came from in, again, Flemington, right? Um, and another one in Raritan Township, Cushwant, Paul, and uh, John McKay. Cushwant is an excellent candidate, uh, a younger candidate. And of course, Raritan for us is a more difficult municipality to win because the numbers are just not there yet. However, they did move the needle, and that is a key to us. And it's what we've done in order to make sure that we can take seats like the LD Senate seat and the LD Assembly seats. So really proud of these candidates, but I just can't wait to, I'm so sad, but I can't wait to dig into the data <laughs> and see what it tells us about who these voters really were. And again, how we use that information for next cycle and 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 leverage it really um, to help us win. I, I have one final quick question about the youth vote. I mean, I, I wonder how much the Democrats uh, appeal to uh, emphasis on abortion and the warning about the Republicans. If they win, they're going to come in and roll back uh, reproductive rights. How that appeal to uh, younger voters um, and uh, Stacey also, I wonder if, um, you know, how many suburban Republican women were uh, motivated by that attack as well. I don't know. Maybe they just targeted to Democratic households to get the base out. So be it. But I'm just you know, I'm just curious about that question. In places like 16, where you've seen a shift of what used to be a behavioral Republican to a behavioral Democrat, you know, I, I, I too wonder how much those things affected it. And I'm not sure that people bought the intellectual argument that someone's going to ban abortion here in New Jersey. But I think that at some level, we have women who we target that to who are offended by the idea that they don't care about the woman in Alabama, that this is just about New Jersey. Right. Um, you know, and it's, it's the issue themse- that itself that, that is a motivator. So I, I think that will be interesting to look at. And that won't be something that's obvious from data on who turned out. Um, but it's clearly something that it affected a universe of people. And in 16, it's a, it's a great example of, you know, Ross Trothagen, the, the young gentleman that Colleen was talking about, he's pro-choice, openly pro-choice. Right. pro-choice yeah. He was running beneath someone who had a very clear and public pro-life position and people couldn't separate the two. Um, and I think that is a, that's a question we need to answer in a state like New Jersey, where you have a lot of moderates who are pro-choice um, and even some voters who would call themselves conservative um, on the Republican side who are, are pro-choice. Um, figuring out what to say about that issue and also getting to the point where someone says something about that issue and it's able to be heard is important because Ross certainly made every attempt but again, not having regular media and local media that's getting into these places, no arbiter, um, you know, at the local level who's who's saying, no, this is actually where he stands. Um, you know, it makes it really tough. Yeah. And so I think that's a question of resources need to address. And I would yeah. say, listen, Republicans did not do themselves a favor when they decided to do what they did and put someone on the Supreme Court or a number of people in the Supreme Court where we knew what they were going to do. Right. And so I, I have little um, patience. For Republicans on this issue, just because it, I am a woman, I am 42. I refuse to be in a position where my daughter has less rights than I do, um, my both my daughters. And so, for me, when I look at this issue, Republicans need to own it and deal with it and move on. And so, if we as Democrats need to push very hard, because there are bills even in New Jersey where they are trying to limit access for women on healthcare, that's unacceptable. While I don't think they'll ever be able to pass, it's still unacceptable. You don't ever get the right to tell me what I get to do with my body on any day. And so I think this issue is one that Democrats should own and use and make sure that we continue to safeguard women in every respect when it comes to what they can do with their bodies and their health care. 
Everybody, I would love to talk for another hour, um, but we probably all need more caffeine at this point. Um, this has been such a lively conversation. Everybody give me like literally a one sentence takeaway. I'll go around and as we wrap up, Janine, I'm going to go with you first. The only thing I'll say is the results that came out of yesterday. Don't judge the future based upon those results. Anything Ooh. can happen moving forward. Very wise, Matt. That's a good one. Um, uh, I think, uh, yeah, I think the same thing. You know, don't take anything for granted. Really think about your plan as you're going into it. Understand if you're Republicans, that we are at a disadvantage organizationally at the start of the day, you know, in terms of registration. We just have to do a much better job on using all the tools of the voting process, which is vote by mail, the early voting. And all I'll say is I, I wonder if early voting is as necessary as the other two forms of voting, right? So we do a lot of the VBB, the VBM and day of, but early voting seems to be tricking down every day. So I'm wondering for the expense, is it worth the effort? And just really focus on vote by mail and, uh, and same day. Great points, Colleen. Um, yeah, that's a very good point. Uh, I would say kind of, as Janine said, you know, we a day in, Politics can be a lifetime. Anything can change. So certainly going forward, I don't think the Democrats can less rest on their laurels. Um, you know, next year, I, I, I agree with, I forget who said it, but that if we don't have a Democrat in the Senate, that would be shocking. But um, it's going to be an interesting race for the primary coming up to that. Great. Charlie. Um. I think too, very quickly, the vote by mail uh, dilemma for the Republicans, again, shows the everlasting uh, ghost of Donald Trump and his uh, conspiratorial and reckless rhetoric from two years ago. It's going to be a while before you shake that out. And I'm also relieved that no kids, trans kids were harmed in this uh, in this debate over parental rights that it didn't heat up to the point where um, some kids may have been attacked. And and it sound, that might sound a little hysterical, but I live in Princeton and there was a swatting incident here at a, um, at the Bayard Rustin uh, Center that had them very, uh, really frightened for a, a couple weeks. So there's my takeaway. Thanks, Charlie. Stacy. Um, just to echo what Janine said, and in particular for Republicans, I think a lot needs to be done to look at the results and, and what they need to learn the same way Democrats did in 2021 on their legislative losses. I think Republicans need to take a hard look at what happened this cycle and what they need to do moving forward and, and you know, use some of the bright spots this year as a guiding principle there. Thanks so much. And Arlene. I just think that we as a party, and I'll speak for Democrats, uh, we need to continue to engage certainly the Latino community as we're going into 2024. They will be absolutely necessary here in New Jersey, but across the country to ensure that we actually hold hold that seat for, for uh, President Biden, um, if he is, of course, our nominee. But I think that that's a key piece that we all need to be very focused on because uh, it's going to be it's going to matter for us. Thank you so much to our incredible panelists this morning. Thank you to all of you. Uh, once again, this is the morning after. Thank you. A huge thank you to my co-moderator, Sarah. And we hope you join us for future events and go read some election results and have another cup of coffee. Thank you so much, everybody. Have a good morning.
Today's podcast has been brought to you by the Eagleton Institute of Politics. Eagleton is a nonpartisan research unit of Rutgers University, New Brunswick. This Moment in Democracy was made possible in part by the generosity of Gerald and Kiko Harvey and Eagleton's many supporters. To support Eagleton's work or sign up for its newsletter, click the links in the description. Please help us support the work we do at This Moment in Democracy. Visit our podcast page at eagleton.rutgers.edu to learn more. We want to hear from our listeners. Email us at podcast at eagleton.ruckers.edu to send in your comments about today's episode or suggest topics that you want to hear about.